Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, pastor at Out of Ashes Ministries, coming to you all the way from Southwest Louisiana. And I hope you are doing extremely well this week as the summer draws to a close, school has begun, and uh, new schedules and all that good stuff. It's great to be with you all today. I want to say a really quick welcome to anyone who's listening for the first time. Uh, thank you guys for stopping by, and thank Thanks for all the support and the love. For those of you who have uh, listened uh, regularly over the last year or so, over a year, and uh, just thank you guys for the community and for sharing the episodes and creating conversation and all the stuff, all the things are good, and uh, I'm excited to be back with you all again today. Uh, so, what is coming up? Well, we are in the month of Elul, and we are in the 40 days of Shuvah. And uh, it's an exciting time of introspection and learning uh, about ourselves. And I really uh, pray that you are taking advantage of this time and uh, just letting Hashem speak to you and uh, and move in your life as you do inventory. Uh, that's what this is all about. The goal uh, for this is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, uh, where we come before the King. And as most of you will know, uh, Elul. The month of Elul has an acronym. Uh, traditionally, it's Ani Ladodi Vadodi Li, which is uh, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine uh, from uh, Shir Hashirim. And the beautiful picture uh, traditionally of this month is that the king is in the field. And this idea that, um, you know, during this time of the year, of course, Hashem is always available to us. Uh, he is always accessible. His ear is always turned towards our prayers and petitions and praises. And yet at this time of the year, uh, the idea that the king is in the field, that he comes out of his palace, comes off of his throne, and is out with everyone beckoning and calling everyone closer to himself. And so this is a, a very, very special time of year. As I said, the target is the fall Moedim and uh, where on Rosh Hashanah the king is enthroned once again back in his, on his throne. And, and of course, you know, God is always on his throne. But you understand hopefully the language and the picture that we're using, uh, that we've, we've used, and this idea that we go to approach the king and we ask him for forgiveness for how we've, uh, you know, where we failed in the past year, where we haven't carried his reputation well and those things. Uh, and then ultimately recompense is made and restoration is made for all of those areas so that at Sukkot, the Father can dwell with us and we can dwell with Him. And so it's a beautiful time of year. Again, I hope you are taking advantage uh, of this time and being very, um, very particular and very uh, diligent, you know, and, and purposeful about each day uh, and seeing, you know, where, where we all could represent Him better. 
And so, yeah, this is uh, that is this, and then Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yom Truah, and then Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Just real quickly on Sukkot, we've had a bunch of folks register to come and keep Sukkot here at OAM uh, in South Louisiana, and we're overwhelmed in a good way, and also in kind of an unnerved way. <laughs> we don't we didn't expect these many people, but it's awesome. And uh, we've been told for the last several years, hey, get ready, because more and more people are going to want to come and spend Sukkot. And we're like, why? Uh, why, why would you want to come to Southwest Louisiana? Uh, but if you have registered, or if you if you have not registered, let me say, please go to our website, uh, outofashesministries.org, and register there. There's a Sukkot 22 tab. All the information will be there, and you can register there. Uh, and also, do not forget to purchase your shirts. If you'd like a shirt, there is a link in the top of that page that will take you to our order, an order form where you can order shirts. There is a cutoff for that, so please make sure, and that's the and just in like uh, a week and a half or so, so make sure that you get those ordered so that they can be shipped and you can have them on time. Uh, the only other thing is if you're coming to Sukkot with us, we don't uh, charge a registration fee, or we try, we've trying, we're trying not to have to do that. Uh, but what we do ask is a small donation for if you are eating with us uh, supper each night, uh, dinner, wherever wherever you call it, <laughs> wherever you're from, then if you would, um, we're asking $5 per adult per night that you that you eat with us. And we're purchasing stuff already to begin getting ready for that. So if you are coming, if you would, uh, send in that donation for what you, you know, where, when you're going to eat. Uh, and that'll just help us get stuff bought on the front end. And so we, we really uh, would appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah, that is all that's going on. Uh, there's a lot happening. So hopefully you are spending, planning to spend Sukkot somewhere. And even if it's your own place, I hope that you build a sukkah and uh, have a really meaningful, meaningful time. So uh, we're going to jump into this week's episode and we're going to depart from the Parsha, which we've been doing the last few weeks. And I want to talk about uh, Yeshua's statement being salt, the salt of the earth, and some things that I've been learning about the temple and a beautiful message that I brought on Shabbat, but I know many of you may not watch our Shabbat. You may catch us here, so I wanted to bring it to you guys and gals as well. So we're going to get into that just as soon as we go to the Father in prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven, Avinu Malkinu, we bless you and thank you, Father, for this time together. And your creation blesses its creator. And I pray, Father, that through this information, we understand Yeshua better. We understand your word better. And we understand our place in your kingdom better. Amen and amen. Ladies and gentlemen, so we are going to begin in uh, Pasha Vaikra, uh, the second chapter of the book of Vaikra, Leviticus, and we're going to start there and work our way all the way to the Gospel of Matthew. And this is uh, this this statement Yeshua um, Yeshua uses about being the salt of the earth is a beautiful statement, of course, and it has been repeated and taught on. Uh, ad nauseum, and I have done so as well, especially in youth ministry. Um, 
It makes a great five-minute devotion for a football team before a game. It makes a great, uh, you know, Christian school or you know, Bible school club uh, discussion, and uh, you know, short devotion kind of thing. But there is so much to this statement um, that I think one of the things that we try to do here, one of the things that I am uh, really, you know, really work towards is what did the original hearers hear? Uh, what was going on in their heads? You know, I don't know if everybody's like this, but I know many people are, that when you hear something, uh, you create a picture of what is being said in your mind, like a word picture, uh, to help kind of engage with, with what's being said so that it's not so abstract, right? And I don't know if everybody does that, but I know a lot of folks do. And I, what, what I want to, when I read Scripture, when I read the Bible, what I want to do is I want to have as close to the same pictures in my head as the first hearers and the subsequent generation of hearers and readers did when they, uh, you know, first heard or read these words. And, and that's a difficult task, but I think it's a, a largely doable task uh, as we learn context and history, geography, you know, all of these things are so vitally important. And so that's what our aim for today is to go back in context and build a context that I think uh, will lend to our understanding of Yeshua's words in Matthew chapter 5. Now, I want to say in the beginning, this is not going to necessarily change or alter probably the uh, overwhelming understanding, the overall understanding that you have of this passage. Uh, there probably are not going to be many truth bombs in this in this lesson, in this this episode. But I hope what it does is it gives you a more well-rounded world. So one of the things that we talk about when we talk about studying temple, Torah, Hebrew, history, you know, geography, archaeology, all these things, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to create a world that we can mentally move around in. And so if you think about where you're from, where you live, you're very familiar with the area where you live, right? Familiar with the people, the places, uh, the vegetation, the flora and fauna, the traffic, you know, the weather, uh, the sights and sounds, the, the schedule, the pace. You're very familiar with those things to the point where you don't even realize them maybe. They just become part of your living, your rhythm. And that is not something you could, you think about describing that to someone who's never experienced it. And it could be difficult, right? It, it would take a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of description. And ultimately, your description will only go so far. You have to experience it, right? So uh, this, this, is, this is what we're trying to recreate with the ancient world. And so by studying all these topics and things, that's what we're, we're, we're shooting for. And so what we want to do is we want to start in the second chapter of Vayikra and just read one verse, and then we're going to talk about some temple things, and, uh, and then we'll get to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll talk about the context and what maybe uh, possibly expand and expound and hopefully deepen the understanding that we have uh, that you know that is a possibility. Again, this is not going to change the meaning, and I don't mean to say that this is this is the right interpretation of Yeshua's words. However, I do want to just add some depth and just say that you know Yeshua's disciples, the people that are hearing him teach uh, about being salt, the salt of the earth. 
they have a context, right? They have a world that they move around in that they just take for granted. It's just their rhythm, right? It's it's their their space. And um, so when some of these things that might it might have triggered for them as he said these words. And we're going to try to build that today in this episode. So let's go to Vaikra, Leviticus chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 13. Now, the beginning of Vaikra, as you probably know, Vaikra, the book Vaikra, and he called, um, is what is generally talked about as the priestly manual. We've done episodes on Vaikra before, my favorite book of the Torah. We, we've done episodes on that before, but this first five chapters of Vaikra are the, the five main uh, types of karbanot, of offerings that are offered in Ben Beit HaMikdash. So in chapter 1, we have the olah, right, the elevation or the burnt offering. In chapter 2, uh, we have the, the meal offering or the mincha. In chapter 3, we have the shlamim offering or the peace offering. Chapter 4 is the chatat offering, most often called the sin offering, but what I like to call the purification offering. And then lastly, we have the asham, which is the kind of reconciliation uh, and recompense offering. They are commonly called the guilt offering, right? So in Leviticus chapter 2 here, we're talking about particularly the minha offering. And it says in verse 13, you shall salt your every meal offering with salt. You may not discontinue the salt of your God's covenant from upon your meal offering. On your every offering, you shall offer salt. Okay, so here we have the command to salt the offering. Now, most of you will know that in the Torah, the traditional count um, of the commandments is 613, right? That's the traditional uh, rabbinic count. Uh, you may count differently. It doesn't matter. That's, that's what we call taryag mitzvot. Uh, that is the 613 commandments, and they are broken up traditionally between positive and negative commandments, and that doesn't mean some of them are good and some are bad. Of course, positive is you shall, and negative is you shall not, Right? And so here in this verse, we begin with a positive commandment. You shall salt your every meal offering with salt, right? Positive. Then it immediately flips to a negative, and you, sh- you may not discontinue the salt of your God's covenant from upon your meal offering. On every offering, you shall offer salt. So again, this is speaking specifically of the minha offering, the flower offering, and yet it is because of that second part of that, or that last phrase in that verse, your every offering, it is, it is understood and it was practiced that every single offering had to have salt, whether or not it was, um, it was flour or meat. Every single offering that touched the altar that was offered in Beit HaMikdash had to contain salt, okay? So there's some interesting phrases and interesting things about this. So why... Why salt, right? What's the big deal about salt and that every uh, offering had to be salted? Well, on a really super practical level, and this is going to seem not spiritual at all, but the sages describe this, and let me say something about when I, when I talk about the sages, 
Um, we, you know, we can all have our ideas and our reasons for why the Bible says certain things and what it means, etc. And that's perfectly fine. And hopefully we do. Um, but there's some things that we just go like, well, we don't know. So we look at the, what the Jewish sages have said, and we, you know, we can agree or disagree. That's, that's perfectly fine. But at least to get some insight, as I always say, it's not what to think, it's how to think. That's what we want to look at, right? So there's several reasons given for this. Number one, again, maybe not seemingly super, super spiritual, but the first one is just seasoning, right? <laughs> it's just seasoning. Uh, it's just most of these offerings are eaten by either the Kohen, except for the Olah, either the Kohen, or the Kohenim, the Levites, or the offerer, or a combination thereof, right? And so you want it to taste good, right? And uh, more than that, we are offering these offerings to Hashem. And of course, God doesn't eat. But the idea is that, again, kind of riffing off the Elul vibe, um, he is the king. And anytime there's a banquet, which is what these meeting times at the, the at Beit HaMikdash are, whether they're the regular uh, Tamid offerings, the continual offerings, or whether they're a feast or whatever celebration, the idea is that you have you have uh, you have a company, you have a, a meeting with the king, and this idea of good tasting food that salt brings out this the you know the taste and the pleasure of the food. Um, we again we I made the statement before, and this is something I I, I got from Joe Good. Um, this idea we forget that eating is a form of worship in Scripture, and it is maybe arguably the highest form of worship, higher than singing, higher than clapping, higher than, you know, prayer even. And this idea of eating, and we want it to be good. And think about your own life, and think about how important food is, not just for your physical viability and your sustenance, but the idea of, you know, you prepare. How many of you like to eat stuff that doesn't taste good? We don't, we don't because food is important. Every time we eat, even if it's in a rush, it's an experience, right? And we, we recognize that. So the first reason is just for seasoning. And, and it's because we want this to be a special time. We want this to be a, a time where we enjoy eating together because eating together is so powerful, especially in the presence of Hashem. Secondly, there is evidence that in ancient covenants, there, there's this phrase in the, in, in Vayikra 2.13, the salt of the covenant of your God. What the heck is that about, right? The salt of the covenant of your God? Well, there's this, this evidence in ancient, uh, in, in, you know, academic studies in the ancient world, A&E, ancient Near Eastern studies, that in the, the cultures of Israel and surrounding Israel, that Covenants were always made over a meal. There was always a covenantal meal. And we see this in the Torah very explicitly, right? Moshe goes up the mountain to receive uh, the Torah, to receive the Ten Commandments. And what happens? Moshe goes up with 70 elders. They go uh, halfway up the mountain. And what happens? They have a meal, right? They have a meal and the Torah describes this as the, the, the floor of the throne room, right? This techelet color that is the floor of the throne room and the train of Hashem's robes, right? This is a meal in the heavenly court with the heavenly king. This is a covenantal meal. 
And so, first of all, ancient covenants were always over a meal. Secondly, the covenant always included salt. You always had salt with the meal in a covenantal meal. It's just part of the way the culture worked. If, and if you didn't have salt, it, it negated basically the whole purpose of being there and eating this covenantal meal. So you have this ancient covenant, right? Now, there, what does the salt mean in that covenantal, uh, that covenantal meal and covenantal agreement? Well, number one, salt, of course, has the power of preservation. And so in the, that is its, maybe its most, uh, most important and most, you know, self, uh, you know, self apparent, apparent, excuse me, uh, attribute is that is preserving. And so it speaks to the everlasting nature of a covenant, to the length and longevity and strength of a covenant, right? But salt also is, is this unique, it's this unique chemical, it's this unique, you know, element that it is made up of opposing forces. It's, it's a, it's a, a mineral or a composition, um, with a dichotomy to it. The whole thing about salt is that it is a dichotomy. And what do I mean by that? Well, when we read what the sages have to say about salt, they talk about fire and water, these two opposite ends of the spectrum. And where do we get fire and water from? Well, the water of the sea, and you only have salt when the water of the sea is heated by the sun, which is a ball of fire, right? And the water evaporates and you get this this beautiful thing called salt. And so you have these two kind of opposing sides, salt, uh, fire and water. And that is part of the, the identity and the makeup of salt. Secondly, salt has the power to preserve, right? We talked about this in the covenant. Salt has the power to preserve, but salt also has the power to kill. We have several uh, examples in Tanakh about kings that would go in and conquer a city and they would sow their fields with salt. And what is the purpose? Well, the purpose is to basically create a famine where the, the ground would be dead and crops could not be grown. So salt is this weird, again, dichotomy of life and death. It's kind of a, it kind of harkens back to the, the, the two trees in, in Gan Eden, right? The tree of life and death. And you, we get to choose which one we're going to, to be obedient to and which one we're going to follow, right? So kill and preserve, fire and water, fire and water. And then these two aspects of justice and mercy, this, this aspect of justice, which in last week's Parsha, Kitetse, uh, I'm sorry, uh, last week's Parsha, it's Shoftim, um, we talked about just, justice and righteousness and the famous phrase, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And, the, and it's all about the judges and how they, how they act justly. But if we only had Hashem's justice, then we would all be found guilty and he would have to start over constantly, Right. So Hashem himself tempers his justice with mercy. And so fire, justice, death, all on one side, and water, mercy, right? And life all on the other side. Both of these things are spoken to in this simple composition of salt. And it's absolutely beautiful. So we have this salt that's on the offerings every time there was an offering brought 
which is constantly, right? The people are always going to the Mishkan, the tabernacle, or Beit HaMikdash later, and bringing these offerings, and there's constantly salt as a part of the offering process, right? And, and as the system. So this is always something that is in the mind of the offerer, that this salt is so important. And so a little bit of the world that they would have understood is that as they salt these offering, these carbon, these things which draw them near to Hashem, a carbon, is part of that is salt, justice and mercy, life and death, fire and water, right? These, these beautiful dichotomies that are opposite ends of the spectrum and yet both included in this composition. And so this every offering all the time, but there actually is more to it than that. As we look a little deeper into the temple service, we're going to understand a little bit more about how important salt was, uh, not only in the Mishkan, but especially Beit HaMikdash. We'll get into that in the second episode, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So we are talking about salt, right? Salt of the earth. And so let's talk about just salt, salting. We know, of course, that the offerings are salted, right? Every offering is salted. Um, by the way, every Shabbat when we have challah, we salt the challah. And we're not making an offering. We understand that. But it is, again, one of these things that remind us not only of how it was done in Beit HaMikdash, that's really the primary reason, but hopefully after this episode, we it, it becomes more uh, meaningful to us. And that even when we sit down for a meal or when we're cooking and preparing a meal, as we're salting it, hopefully it's triggering these things in our minds because we are. this is what it would have triggered for the ancient Israelites. And we want, again, to, to build this world that we can be a part of, right? And so we have... Uh, salting in the temple in general. You have the offerings that are salted. We know that. But let me ask you this. Let's just think about, let's just think about really practical things, right? What is the floor made out of in the temple? Well, it's stone. And let me ask you this next question is, what do the priests and Levites wear on their feet in the temple? If you said they're barefoot, you would be correct. Now, they are doing a massive amount of slaughter each and every day in the temple, right? And again, for kind of an expanded uh, version of this, check out our website and our, our Facebook page. I'll, I have the Shabbat teaching posted where we actually show a model of the temple and things like that. It's, it's more kind of immersive. So this idea that there is a lot of slaughter in the temple, of course, in certain areas, and they're barefoot on stone. Now, for those of you that know anything about, you know, hunting or whatever, you've been around slaughter. When you get blood on stone, what happens? It gets really slick, right? It gets really, really slick. So we know through research of Joe Good and his team and other places that 
that there are some other things, not only the offerings themselves that were salted, but also the ramp up the Mizbeach, up to the altar, was salted. I mean, imagine, you have this blood, you're going up a stone ramp. It's salted for traction. And then the top of the altar is also salted, right? But there's another place that's salted that's really interesting. And that is on each side, the north and the south of Beit HaMikdash. If you've ever seen a model, there are these four chambers, main chambers, on the outside, on the corners of the temple. And then in between the north and south, you have these huge rooms that we know are about the size of a football field. A little bit smaller than a football field. But that's a huge room. And they were both slaughterhouses. So Josephus, based on Josephus's numbers, we can get a kind of an idea of, I think it's Pesach, for one year he talks about, that we know we can do some roundabout math and imagine that there were, for, for a year at Pesach, there were about 3 million offerings brought, animal offerings. That's a lot of offerings, folks. That's a lot of animals. And they were slaughtered in these huge slaughterhouses. So just imagine, like, again, not super spiritual, but imagine the mechanics of this. Imagine if you were going to Beit HaMikdash for, for Pesach, you know, it, it may it be soon in our days. We imagine we're going to the temple, and you have these Levites and these Kohanim that are that are slaughtering these animals. They're they're doing the offerings, right? They're breaking down, and separating, and and on all these things, and, and going, manipulating the blood, and doing all this stuff. There is a terrible amount of blood in in these slaughterhouses. Again, stone, barefoot blood, right? And so we know that the floors of these slaughterhouses were constantly being salted. They were constantly being salted, and we know that the young Levites, remember, Levites were called to service at 20, but they actually didn't start working until 30, so they have like a 10-year apprenticeship, right? The young Levites were constantly salting the floor and then washing it with water, salting and washing, salting and then like squeegeeing it or, you know, brooming it and to make sure that it was clean and that it was safe. So imagine this, you have all the salt from the offerings, all the blood from the offerings, the altar, the slaughterhouses, and then the outdoor slaughterhouse that's north of the altar there in the Azara. You have all of this water and blood and salt, right? Where does it all go? Well, we have archaeological evidence that, of course, there is a plumbing system in the temple. In Beit HaMikdash, there are drains right? There's water sources, there's inlets, outlets, drain, there's all these, all these water sources. You have to have water in the temple for it to function. Another important and interesting fact is that we are told, uh, and I believe it is Josephus again, that there was never, there were never any flies in Beit HaMikdash. Now think about that. That's a, that's a fascinating little point to ponder. All of these offerings, all of this blood, and there were never any flies and what we believe is that that was due to, number one, the washing with the water. The floors were always washed and the salt, keeping them clean. And number two, the incense that was burned in Beit HaMikdash. So again, I, I, just to kind of go back to what I said before, 
maybe not a lot of truth bombs in this episode and like things that are going to change your life. And maybe not the, the most spiritual episode we've ever done. But I think it's really important to understand the mechanics. It's, under, it's important to understand the, the mechanics. And, you know, some people may call this minutia, right? It's just the minutia of the temple. Who cares about how it was kept? And, what, you know, the details don't matter. But I have this little phrase that it's not minutia, it's kedusha. In other words, if you go into a Shabbat service, you go into a, a Sunday church service, whatever it is, you go into a business, you go into a restaurant, and if the details are not cared for, and if the details are not sorted out, then it ruins the whole experience. Things are chaotic, things are unplanned, it may be dirty, it may smell. Uh, you know, in your Sabbath gatherings, who knows who's leading? What are we doing next? Where do the kids go? Where, you know, are we eating? Who brought food? Who didn't? Do the bathrooms work? You know, is it cool? Is it warm? All, all of these things we may take as minutia, as details, but they all matter. They are all vitally important to making the whole thing work and making the experience work, right? So never a fly. I think that's absolutely fascinating. So if you know anything about the geography of Jerusalem, this is important, right? That Jerusalem is surrounded by three valleys, okay? So uh, this is a lot easier with a map, of course, and video, but this is, this is what we, where we are and what we have. You have to the east of Jerusalem, the one we all know is the Kidron Valley, right? It goes up from north to south along the east side of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Kidron Valley from Har Habayit, the Temple Mount, is the Mount of Olives, right? So that you have the Kidron Valley. Then down in the south, and kind of going up south across the west and up, is the Valley of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. And that is the Ben Hinnom. Uh, that's an important valley because it makes up a lot of your theology and you may not even know it. This Valley of Hinnom is, again, the Southern Valley, and it is traditionally when, in the time of Solomon, where the wayward Israelites sacrificed their children to the god Moloch. Now, what's fascinating about that is if you look at this on a map, they are literally in the shadow of Beit HaMikdash. It's, it's fascinating. This is also where we get the idea of the, the ever, ever uh, you know, the forever burning fire, etc., Gehenna, Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom, right? Where we get the idea of hell from. It's the Valley of Hinnom there to the south. So Kidron, Hinnom, and then coming out from between those two, running up the east side of the Temple Mount, you have the Tyropian Valley. Now, if you, you probably know this already, but if you don't, if you look at that on a map and you draw them out, they make the letter Shin, make the letter Sheen, which is traditionally understood as the word, the letter for Shaddai, right? And what's really interesting about that also is that there is something in Hebrew grammar called a Dagesh. Dagesh is a little dot, and the Sheen gets a Dagesh, Dagesh Forte, which doubles the letter, right? Makes it, does it, you, it's twice. And where Beit HaMikdash is, Har Habayit is, is exactly where you would put that sheen. 
And so it's just a it's a beautiful thing. Again, hard to kind of illustrate on on audio, but a beautiful, beautiful thing. So all of this water, all of this blood, and all of this salt drains down from Har Habayit, from the Temple Mount, and it drains down to where the Kidron Valley, the Tyropian Valley, and the Valley of Hinnom meet down south of the temple in a place called the Field of Blood. Now, you may recognize that as related to Judas, Judas Iscariot. But what I want you to understand is that that was a thing long before Judas Iscariot. This field of blood is where all of this water and blood and salt drain down to. And we are told in the Talmud, in Yoma, Tractate Yoma, that this water that came out of the temple and the soil from this field was sold to farmers for fertilizer. Now think about that for a second. Salt, if you put it, if you just put iodized salt, right, table salt in your garden, it's going to kill everything. And it's going to make the ground so that nothing can grow in it in subsequent years. And yet here, Mixed with water and blood, this water that drained out into the soil and the soil itself was sold as fertilizer for farmers. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that's brilliant. So what does this what does this mean? Well, this place is called Hakel Dama, the field of blood, and it is again, you know, tell, tells us in Yoma that it was sold. So one question we have to ask ourselves, the thing we haven't talked about yet is, I mentioned earlier, if you put iodized or table salt on your garden, it'll kill it. Is that what we're talking about here? Is that the salt we're talking about? Where does all the salt for the temple come from? You have any guesses? If you said the Dead Sea, you would be correct. See, what we have to remember is that Beit HaMikdash in the first and second temple period, and even in the Mishkan in, in the wilderness, this sacred space, this house of God, right? The house of Kedusha, the dwelling place of Hashem in the life of Israel serves as the center for life. It is the center of their lives. There is no there is no religious or social life apart or separated that can be separated from the temple. Their language, their rhythms, their, their rituals, everything was relegated by Beit HaMikdash, including their industry. And so you have farmers that, of course, farm to feed their families. They farm to sell at market. But mostly they farm to be able to supply Beit HaMikdash. Shepherds and livestock managers, of course, for their families to sell at market. But where's the market? <laughs> sure, in their individual towns, but also to supply Beit HaMikdash, first and foremost. This is part of, the, part of the tithe, part of the offering, right? And salt is no different. Salt, stone, wood, all industries tie into Beit HaMikdash. And the place where you mine salt in Israel is the Dead Sea. 
Now, Dead Sea Salt is different and unique to what we know of as salt. And if you've ever been to Israel and you've maybe floated in the Dead Sea, what a wonderful experience that is, right? But if you look at the composition of Dead Sea Salt, most salt on earth has a sodium chloride level somewhere in the 80s, 87%, something like that. Dead Sea Salt sodium chloride is down in the 30s. And what makes up the rest of Dead Sea Salt? It's every beneficial mineral and trace mineral you could imagine. It's not like any other salt in the world. And so what we're not talking about, we're not talking about average everyday table salt or iodized salt. We're talking about a very special, very special composition, very special makeup of salt that is used in Beit HaMikdash, used in the, in the temple. And this dead sea salt is very, very important not only to the function of the temple, but in what it means and what it dis- – and we could talk about, gosh, we could go into how we got the Dead Sea and, and all that, and it would even bring more to this. We don't have time to do that in this episode necessarily. But all of these things, remember, all of these facts and figures and history and geography and all of these things, as I told you in the beginning, create a world, a mental world for us to move around in, right? You would think this field of blood, Akeldama, you would think this field of blood would be a barren place, right? It would probably be dead. It would probably be no vegetation there. No, actually, it is one of the greenest, most lush, most lush, luscious, lush places in all of Jerusalem. And that is the power of blood and salt and water. Again, salt having these two opposite sides, these two opposing sides to it. It's beautiful and it's, it's amazing. So with all of that in mind, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, and ironically, verse 13. Yeshua says, you are the salt of the earth. And a matter of fact, I'm not even going to read the rest of the verse. You are the salt of the earth. Now, again, if we read that understanding, our, our you know, type of salt, that should immediately tell us in our context being the salt of the earth, well, that means killing. That means death. If you salt the earth, you sow the earth with salt, you're, you're dooming it to infertility. But Yeshua says the salt of the earth. And what I want to propose to you for your consideration is that the context of this statement is akeldama, is the field of blood. The context of the statement is, is not just something Yeshua makes up. It's not just some throwaway phrase. It is in the context of the center of their world, which is Beit HaMikdash, which is the temple. And understanding what would the disciples and the hearers hear when he said this, the salt of the earth. Would they not immediately, one of the things they would not immediately think of is Akel the field of blood. especially because the understanding that this is this is beneficial this soil that comes from the temple from the salt and blood and water of the temple is beneficial it is what these farmers and there're probably some farmers in his audience that have purchased soil and water from down in Akeldama there are people there that understand what salt of the earth means 
It is a byproduct. It is what's left over from the offerings, the carbonate that have gone on daily, every day, tamid in the, in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple. You are the salt of the earth. And so he goes on to talk about flavoring, and we've talked about that, just seasoning, right? <laughs> this is, doesn't seem to be very spiritual. However, Yeshua seems to use it in a very, very spiritual way. And so what I want to propose is maybe a controversial statement. When we study Torah, when we study temple, when we go to the land of Israel, when we, you know, heard stories about, you know, and, and things that people, when people go to the land of Israel, they go, you know, oh, there's, there's a rock. Well, the, you know, the scripture says Yeshua is the rock. And like, it's this idea that like everything is about Yeshua and before you turn me off, I'm going to temper this. I'm going to temper this a little bit. And let me explain. We have this concept that everything in Scripture is about Yeshua. And while I would agree with that overall idea that everything points to Yeshua, we've had some trouble in the Torah movement going like, well, the laws of Nida, when a woman is in her, her monthly time, how does that point to Yeshua, <laughs> right? And we've made up things about why it does, and, you know, seek, we've unlocked secrets and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I want to make this statement, that when we study the temple and we study the Torah, we study Israel, the land of Israel, the Tanakh as a whole, could it be that everything is not so much about Yeshua, maybe... Yeshua is about it. Not to say that things don't point to Yeshua. They obviously do. And that's not, you know, so don't, don't get me twisted. But over and over and over in the Gospels, Yeshua refers to the prophets, the commandments. He refers back us back to the Father. He always is referring us to Moshe, right? And so, could it be that we need to broaden our understanding a little bit and say, you know what? Everything in Beit HaMikdash is not necessarily one-to-one about Yeshua, but maybe Yeshua is all about it. Yeshua loved the temple. He loved the house of his father. He referenced it constantly. He is constantly there teaching and correcting and exhorting, right? And so what we have to do is we have to Maybe, again, step back and broaden our understanding and focus on Yeshua so much that we focus on Yeshua, what Yeshua actually focused on. There's, I think it's Ryan White, a great teacher and brilliant guy and nice guy all around, that I first heard this from, and it's this idea of faith in Messiah, yes, faith in Yeshua, yes, but broadening that to the faith of Messiah, the faith of Yeshua. And so again, I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that Yeshua is not important, that it, the story is all not about him. What I'm saying is let's broaden our understanding and say that, yes, it is all about Yeshua, but let's not stop there. Let's add to that and go, okay, if it's all about Yeshua, what was he all about? And it seems to me that he was all about pointing us back, restoring the ideas and, and the, the ethics of the Torah, the Tanakh, the prophets, Moshe, 
Avinu, our father, right? And so by learning and studying and understanding some of these things, again, I hope this helps you to create a, maybe a, a broader picture or a more colorful, a more detailed picture. When you hear those are people that are salt of the earth people, what does that mean? Well, we find out later in the New Testament, we hear Paul saying to present our bodies as living, and I know most say sacrifices. You guys know by now I don't really like that word. As living offerings. As living offerings, if we are live, presenting ourselves to Hashem as living offerings, we have to be salted, which means we have to, we have to constantly in our lives being, we have to constantly be choosing between those two sides of the salt. Are we going to be people that are going to kill, that are going to be only justice, that are going to be only fire? Is that who we're going to be? Or are we going to be people that are those things yet tempered with mercy, water, life? Are we going to be one or the other? We're going to be both. We're going to be this beautiful composition and let our lives be seasoned by this beautiful dichotomy, this balance of both. And then once we're presented once we present ourselves to Hashem, what is our byproduct? What comes from us presenting ourselves to Hashem as that living offering, being salted, being cleansed with water of the word, being cleansed with the refining fire? What is the byproduct of that? The byproduct of that should be that our, the result of our offering should be a salting of the earth around us that is used to grow and develop and to fertilize the people and creation around us. So I hope this is helpful for you guys. I hope it's stretched your brain a little bit. I love talking about context. And so sit on this this week. Have a great rest of the week. And until next week, I love you all. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.